Welcome to 2.23am. I'm Christine McDougall. Today my guest is DC Cordova. I first met DC in around 1986 in Sydney when I participated in her program called Money and You. As a person in my mid-twenties, I was very aware of this conversation around money and like many people, I wanted to have a lot of success and stuff and empire build and those things. Money and You offered something very different than that. It invited the participant to go into a deep inquiry around their relationship with money, something I think that is important for all of us to do. It also introduced me to the work of Buckminster Fuller, the man I attribute as being my lifelong mentor and teacher. DC continues to be committed to enabling social entrepreneurship with significant outreach now into China and Asia. You can read more about her and Money Anew in the show notes at blog.223am.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. Today we are speaking with the wonderful DC Cordova, who I have known for a very long time. Maybe if I disclose the time, it will become my age will become too apparent. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us here, DC. Uh, it's so lovely to to reconnect with you after so many years. It's okay. I don't hide my age anymore. It's the time of the internet. People can find out anything about you. It has been a long time since you and I connected. <laughs> yeah. So, so DC, uh, what I want to um, start with, well, actually, just a little context. Um, it was in the mid-80s that, that we met through DC's wonderful program, Money and You. And what happened for me that uh, from that, many, many things, but the key thing that has informed my entire life uh, has been uh, becoming a very uh, dedicated and committed student to the work of Buckminster Fuller. And so I am deeply grateful to you, DC, for introducing me to Bucky's work. Thank you. Thank you. He is magnificent. Thank you very much. Yes. So we are starting with the question... What wakes you at 2.23 a.m.? And I'd like you to consider that as either uh, literal or metaphorical. So, you know, what are the things that are calling you in the dark hours of your own own life and, and business and uh, existence in this world at this particular time? Well, uh, for many years it has been the how do we move the world from scarcity thinking to sufficiency to abundance so that we can eradicate poverty and hunger. Because I have been in the back of training rooms in experiential, you know, just transformational entrepreneurial programs, this question has come up so much on how do we have a world that works for 100% of humanity without any ecological damage to anyone. And so that does keep me up at night. And since we started back in 1977, I was very young, and the Hunger Project started. You know, at that time, they couldn't even measure the number of people that were dying a day from hunger and starvation, dirty water, and the the common things that human beings can die of. And um, really, since that 
state, I think there were something like between 45,000 to 77,000 people a day, mostly children. And today, we are very blessed to be under 17,000 a day. It's still a lot of children. It's still a lot of people. And we have made a lot of progress. So there is still some things that we need to work out in the world. And it has always been for me that entrepreneurs are the ones that will have the answers because so many people are interested in business and in money, and that is the thing that kind of makes the world go around, so to speak, for now. And so that still keeps me up at night. So, so can I ask you, as a young woman, what is it that, that – uh, because there's a lot of young women walking around who may casually think about starving children or um, the inequalities in the world and so on. So what was it – What was it, what was it for you as a young woman that this was such a significant uh, place to dedicate your life to? Because I know you have. Well, it was really interesting because my mother and I speak about it. I'm very blessed to still have a mom. And uh, we spoke about it because I've never really experienced poverty. I've never suffered like that. And um, I've been doing this since I was literally born with it. I tried to adopt a homeless little boy when I was little because I was an only child and I wanted a brother. And I found somebody on the street that didn't have a family or a house, so I adopted him. You can imagine the trauma for my family because they had to, you know, literally turn him back out into the streets, and I couldn't understand why. So it's almost like a drive. And then when I when I started growing up and I experienced a lot of loss in my own life and got very busy, and I really shut down because I went through some emotional things. And then it, my whole life was all about money and business and being a party girl. It was the 70s. And, you know, it was just about very much very self-centered. And in 1976, a year prior to meeting Buckminster Fuller when I joined the Hunger Project, I had what could be considered a self-actualization, a realization, and um, I was working in the legal in the legal system. Then I was an official court reporter. I was going to grow up to be an attorney, and I was in a very interesting environment. And when I opened up my heart again, when I stopped being a little workaholic and just kind of focusing only on money, it all of a sudden this high level of responsibility hit me, and I didn't have words for it. I didn't know how to describe it. But in 1977, I watched Werner Earhart interview Buckminster Fuller, and I was 27 years old. And by the way, that video is available in YouTube, and I will do my best to find the link and send it to you so they can be included right. for your audience. Right. And it's a day-long program, and when I watched it recently, just now, I was in tears because I, I started remembering. I was right front row. I had such a feeling to show up really early. I am not a morning person. I remember getting up very early and sitting across from Buckminster Fuller and Werner Earhart, and everything that that Buckminster fully shared about the condition of the planet, the condition of humanity's mindset, so to speak, and how we had literally been trained to come from scarcity. And at that time, I had already had the experience that 
because I had a lot of deaths. I, my first love when I was six years old died. I've been a little widow twice. When I was 18 years old, the man that I was going to marry died, and his baby, I had miscarriage, and then I had another miscarriage alongside with several friends and too many people for being so young. So I had experienced a lot of loss, and I had then had that epiphany when I was 26 years old, and I was already starting to ask a lot of questions about the conditions of the world. And I had a realization when I did the first S training for myself in 1976. I, I got that the only thing I could change that I had control over was my consciousness. That's the only right. thing I had yeah. you know, control over. So that day, it was almost like a question that Buckminster Fuller and Wernie Earhart posed to the audience on the level of responsibility that we had not only for the, our own lives and our own happiness, but how we could also accomplish so much more happiness by being of service to others. And because I was so young and I was in an inquiry, I began what Buckminster Fuller called a, an experiment of my own life. He used to say that he was a little throwaway, that he was an experiment, that human beings were in the process of, of an experiment. And now as I fast forward, you know, 38 years later, 39 years later, I see that my life did become that, but because I also love wealth and I love good things, I love beautiful cars, beautiful homes, beautiful clothes and spas, and I love cash because I do, and I, I don't want to deny those aspects of myself, I had to mm -hmm. go into a process of inquiring about both having both that love of humanity and also having wealth. Wow, and so it's it's fascinating actually, and I've only just put this together because I was about the same age when um, when I when I attended one of your workshops where you were present and uh, where Robert Kiyosaki was leading, and that was really the start for me of a of a deep dive. In, and it was it was the Bucky Fuller piece that captured me. That was yes. it, that, uh, and it and it really did pivot my whole life at that point. I'd like to ask you. Um, I'd like you, if, if at all possible, can you give me, uh, you made a couple of comments, you, you love wealth and you love cash. Can you give me, first of all, a definition of what you hold wealth to be for you? Well, I have my own definition, and Buckminster Fuller has his own, and other people have different ones. But I have come to the conclusion that true wealth is really having access to networks, to people, to resources, to having the ability for people to trust you and to be able to put deals together and to be able to also make a contribution. So part of it is metaphysical and part of it is actually having the knowledge, the resources, and the ability to be able to literally pick yourself up of any challenges that you may have had and then be able to tackle those true wealth. Now, Buckminster Fuller's definition of true wealth was, you know, of wealth is really uh, take a look at the, how much can you take care of yourself, how many days forward can you take care of yourself. So have you set in place a system that can take care of yourself 
and that that also not only can take care of yourself but can take care of others without damaging, creating any ecological damage to anyone. So, and then, of course, if you talk to a traditional person, you know, or just a person walking down the street, a lot of times they confuse wealth with money. That way it depends on how much money I have in the bank. It depends on how many assets I have. And the thing is that both money and assets are things that can be lost. And I have found that there are many people in the world that have very little, quote, unquote, assets on cash who are very wealthy in the way that they live, in the way that they behave, the way that they're being. And I also have found people that were considered to be very rich, that were very poor in spirit and filled with fear and filled with anxiety and filled with a lack of values and happiness and joy. And, you know, and many of them have gotten to their 50s or 60s and are so sad because they worked their whole lives to get to a place where they thought that money and what they consider wealth was going to bring them happiness and sacrifice so much and lost so much, lost wives and husbands and families and friends over money, and yet that was not what brought happiness to them. So this is an inquiry that every human being has to go deep within. People like me and many wonderful books and people that talk about wealth like my old business partner, Kiyosaki, whom I haven't been business partners with him now for 20 years, but we both have contributed in very different ways, but we have contributed. And one of the things that uh, that you really, a, a human being needs to wake up at 2.23 in the morning and ask themselves that question and find out for him or herself what the answer is. And that's where true joy and happiness comes in. I really appreciate you sharing that, DC. Uh, what, uh, and and I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, part of what we're doing with 2.23 a.m. is, is uh, getting people to really look at some of the assumptions that they've made in their own lives as a sort of a knee-jerk response to a cultural narrative and the, and the, uh, the inquiry into what is wealth uh, and what it means for, for an individual, particularly for their own lives, is, uh, is uh, a question that I think is really important for all of us to ask. So I'd like to, I'd like to sort of go a little bit further with that because you, all, you also made the comment that you love cash. And and uh, and there is, as you know, and I know, and pretty much anyone listening knows, that mention cash and money, and the temperature in the room usually goes up. So, or or yes. down, or you know, it, it evokes emotional responses, uh, particularly if it's your cash that's on the table. It evokes emotional responses that uh, few other things in life do. So, could you speak a little bit about? What you mean when you say, I love cash? And, I mean, I heard you say that. That was fantastic. Well, the reason I say that, I say it on purpose so that people can notice if they do have a reaction to it. If you have a great reaction and you say, oh, yeah, I love it too, that's one thing. But if you go, oh, my God, I thought I really was going to like what this woman was saying, but there she goes. There she is talking about cash. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Something called money in you. Oh, my God. She's wealthy. Oh, my God. Yep, yep, yep. She likes money. Yep. I don't, I, I'm gonna, I don't think I like her. 
at this point, if you're having any kind of negative reaction, any kind of thought that isn't positive or neutral about money, this is where a clearing needs to occur for you, for anyone that's listening. And the reason being is that cash, money, uh, as we know, the currency, any kind of currency, is only a tool. And there, is, there are systems in place. There are formulas, like in our Money and You program, for three and a half days we teach the business success model, which is this model is actually uh, how many businesses, most businesses that are successful, follow that particular model, except that many people don't know there is a model. And so cash is what we call in our universe the ripple effects, the precessional effect, a word of generalized principle that Buckminster Fuller taught us, that is the physics definition of a ripple effect, is the precessional effect of good work, of value giving, and what comes after you provide a good product or service to someone. But in our society, the word cash, the word money, has been so aberrated that people either judge it a lot or have judgments of rich people or judge themselves if they don't have enough or if they lose it, and then they don't even get to understand the mechanics of money. So, for instance, I have an understanding through the many, many years now that I have been in rooms where people have taken money apart a million times. There's three steps to money. One of them is are you in the process of making the money that you have? Are you in the process of keeping the money that you managed to make? Or are you in the process of growing the money that you managed to keep? So there's three different stages to money. And a lot of people, and if I may say this, and I, I, can un, I, I don't say this in a judgmental way, but men have a tendency to not be able to keep the money. It's women, uh, and there's a great book that I have, I'm a part of it, and I am so excited that I'm part of this book, Think and Grow Rich for Women by Sharon Lecter, who actually was also Kiyosaki's business partner. Between the two of us, we spent 20 years with Kiyosaki. I first took him to a certain level with the support of many Australians, by the way, and then, of course, she took him to the next level. And one of the things that in that book, when people go to my homepage, um, they will see a Google Hangout that Sharon and I have together, and I would love for everyone to watch that. And one of the, one of the things that happens, we were having this conversation about money and about wealth and about think and grow rich for women. And what happens is that women have a tendency to be more, uh, protective of their children, of their families. So they don't just make it and kind of like take too many chances to lose it because th there is a survival instinct and they instinctively know that they better handle that cash. And it's interesting because women that have children are a little bit more protective of the money than those of us that don't have children and we are a little bit more fluid with it because we just have ourselves to take care of. And so we know we can make it and we can make it again. But men 
have a tendency to gamble with it too much, and it's actually completely related to bodily hormonal responses. Men that keep making money and losing it, it's almost like a gambling energy that, oh, yeah, 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 I'm on the way back to making it, I'm on the way back, back to making it, and they create all this testosterone and oxytoxins and things in their bodies and all these all the, all these it's the same the same hormones that we get when we gamble the same hormones that we get when we are in love or when we are we are in a passionate uh, act same hormones are produced in the brain by money and by losing it making it losing it making it so people have all this stuff on money they, 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 they get all entangled up. It's almost like see a, a, a little wool, a wool pile, you know, like when our grandmothers used to knit for us. And then their, their, their string used to get all mixed up, or the wool string used to get all mixed up, like that. That is the mess that a lot of people have in their subconscious. So they have a visceral reaction to the word cash. And so I purposely say that, and I actually do this process now, that a lot of people that know that I'm a humanitarian, they know how I really feel about cash, how much I donate, and, you know, they know me really very well. They start laughing when I start purposely bringing cash up to see the reaction in people. And this is a great service that I do for human beings because – the more flat, the more neutral, the more visceral reaction that you have, the more money that you most likely are going to accumulate and do more good with it. It also entangles in there is self-trust, is what we call in money and you yuckberries. Remember that word, you know, yeah. subconscious negative reactions. Remember that's a yuckberry to learning experiences, mistakes that we have made around money. So it's a very deep embedded reaction. And when you become much more fluid with it, then you can learn things like the business success model. Then you can see yourself without any judgment. Where are you in regards to money? Where are you? Okay, great. So you are in great debt. So what? Guess what? Make a plan, create the plan, attend money in you, learn from, you know, wonderful masters how to budget it, how to get out of debt, and then get yourself back on your feet, go through the business success model, build a business or be part of an entrepreneurial team, and get out of it. Today, this moment is the rest, a brand new moment from now on, from this moment on. It's the rest of your life, and transformation only takes a second. So let me, let me. I'm going to unpack pack a little bit of what I'm hearing you say around this conversation because, uh, you know, I know that, that, as I mentioned, money, cash, wealth, uh, value, offering value uh, is such, a, such a, a, an emotionally complex thing for so many people. What I'm hearing you say is that if, that, that money itself the actual object, the artifact of money, is is neutral in, in its own right. It's an expression of, or it's a of the the value and so on that we contribute to the world and how we uh, 
uh, create enterprise and etc and that the more that we the more we recognize that 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 money and cash is that uh, and the more that not, it's not only that it is that but it's also the more that we untangle our emotions from yeah experiencing it in any other way other than a, a, a sort of a recognition of stored value or value etc that uh, um, the and and if I'm circling back because one of the questions that I sort of was arising for me as you were speaking was how do you because we sort of started off with the hunger project and the world of scarcity and and your your uh, great lifelong passion to eradicate poverty and so you know and here we've got on that other side of the equation you know this 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 piece around cash and wealth and et cetera et cetera what I'm hearing you say actually is that 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 there is the possibility for for wealth for for all humanity there's no need for anyone to be in poverty yes okay. yes and it, that that's the big picture and what happens, you know, one of the things Kiyosaki used to say, which I really appreciated, was in order for you to eradicate poverty, you know, start with yourself, <laughs> you know. Yeah. If every human being took responsibility that has the ability to be able to create wealth, which most people in the civilized nations do, they do, you know, in countries like Australia, you know, in most civilized, what they called, you know, uh, civilized countries. I don't know why they use that word, but that's yeah. the word that they, that people kind of know. Then we can then provide information, means, and the ability to be able to help others that truly are not in a position to create money, to create wealth, or to even have the ability to take care of themselves because of the political conditions or the uh, some challenge in the environment. There are people on the planet that cannot help themselves, but if we set systems in place, if we if we can work out certain things, we can then uplift all of humanity's consciousness, and of course that's my purpose, and do it through business. And of course for now, mine has evolved into socially responsible business. So for us, entrepreneurs and business people, and when a person goes through a transformational experience that not only do they want to make profits, but they also want to contribute to others, you get them most amazing genius. You begin to get people that create projects, that create organizations, that create foundations, that create methods to begin to support a whole segment of the population and the whole group. And 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 then, oh gosh, I I have to share this example, for instance. And I and this is a good example for people to see. Also, the very wealthy get inspired to do something because a lot of the real wealthy in the old days used to just write checks and not get involved. And so very quickly, I, I, I know he doesn't mind me sharing the story of the man who created Panavision. His name is Jack Holzman, and he's spelled J-A-C, and Holzman is H-O-L-Z-M-A-N. Jack Holzman was a man that was, we were very big with Hollywood in the early 80s here in San Diego and in L.A., and we began to have these big wigs from Hollywood come. And Jack Holzman was richer than God, what we call richer than God. And um, and he came in and began to, he did, you know, our programs. He did, 
you know, different work with us, came to the business school. He used to speak at the business school. But he never could quite get what we were about, but he really liked us. So he kept coming back, but he was, he'd say, you know, you guys are all poor. You don't really know money. I'm rich, and you're not, you know. Well, of course, we didn't have the kind of money he had. I mean, he was extremely rich. Anyway, so he now, he came back and told us the story, and it was around 1983, something like that. Maybe it was 84, but I think it was 83. And it was Christmas time. It was the day before Christmas. He lived in Malibu. He was at a store standing there waiting to pay for his groceries. And there was a woman in front of him that ran out of money. Her bill was something like $10, but she only had like $8. Very well-dressed, beautiful woman. And she didn't have enough money to pay for her bill, for her grocery bill, and she started crying in front of him and in front of the cashier. And she says, don't worry, don't worry, I'll pay for your food, don't worry about it. And she turned around and looked into his eyes and was so thankful to him and just say, thank you very much, you know, this is food for my children or something like that. It was her Christmas food. You know, this is 83 $8, $9, was a lot of food at the time. Anyway, so she walks out. He walks out to his car, and I remember that he had a very fancy big car that later, it was almost like a Hummer, very expensive car that almost he probably had made for himself. He sat in his very fancy car, and for the first time ever, Jack Holtzman opened his heart and realized that even though he was in Malibu, this woman was in Malibu, there were all these families that were hungry and didn't have enough food to eat that Christmas. He personally got on the phone, got home, got on the phone, and started the first ever food drive in Los Angeles by the rich to begin to feed thousands and thousands of families. By the next day, Jack Holzman used all of his influence, his connections, his network, his money in order to provide food for thousands and thousands of families that Christmas that would have gone hungry. He came back and was sharing that story. He was like a little boy. This is a very powerful man, very cocky man, arrogant, and believe me, and he just grew up in that environment. He was like a little boy sharing with Marshall and I at the time what he had done, and he almost had tears in his eyes, and he looked in our eyes, and he says, I finally got what but Mr. Fuller was trying to say because he had been in the presence of Bucky. By then, Bucky had already passed away. Bucky passed away on July 1st, 1983. I will never forget that moment because I realized that he had gone through a personal transformation that you can't teach that. You can only create environments for people where you plant seeds in people's consciousness and then something will occur and that seed will sprout in a way that cannot be predicted. And that, I was only like 33 years old then, that just anchored me. I said, I am going to spend the rest of my life making sure that I create environments where people can have this experience and whenever they're ready to do what they need to do, they will do it. And that's all I have to do. 
basically I was saying all I have to do is churn out social entrepreneurs, which, of course, I didn't have that language at the time. And that has been proven over and over and over again. Now, you could say that he had his 2.23 a.m. moment sitting in the parking lot of a big supermarket in Malibu. That was Jack Holzman experience. And In actual fact, you know, and, and I was going to, because I was going to bring it back to that, um, th- that he attended your programs and that he was he was kept showing up in, in the work that you were doing was yes. the fall of the 2.23 a.m. moment. The epiphany was the uh, the parking lot because, uh, you know, I, I, I think so many people, uh, and this, this equates across the board, whether it's very wealthy, very successful, or people who are seeking some level of of success and fulfillment in life this is they they find themselves awake going you know there's something that's calling me i don't know i don't know what it is and i'm not sure how to capture it uh and and as long as you stay in that inquiry and you stay in the call the answers will show up and it will actually show up as you've just demonstrated in sometimes completely obscure and surprising ways uh the ground is fertilized because, because you're staying in the question yeah. And so that's why you, you have to live in the inquiry, the inquiry that I was asking later. And this is what happens for many very successful entrepreneurs because, you know, in the, uh, uh, the scale of needs of Maslow, that's a very popular psychological chart that people like to use. Um, one of the things that happens is that, you know, the more that a person becomes self-actualized, the more that they will want to serve others. Some people start very young, some people a little bit older. But it has also to do, it's a phenomena that happens in many of the advanced or the economically developed countries. And this is why we have a, uh, we have an industry the personal development industry is a 100 billion U.S. industry a year. The reason is why this industry has grown so much is because people are so interested in learning about themselves. They're interested in learning about more about the industry. Of course, many of those are also getting educated through different organizations. But people are living more and more in the inquiry of how more can they make a difference to their world, not just making money. And now there's a whole bunch of young people, I mean, very young. I mean, I just heard about a group in the last year in on Wall Street that are very, very young and are moving very quickly, and they have absolutely no interest in empowering, selling, promoting anything that will hurt the environment. Nothing, nothing. They're not willing to do one thing that hurts human beings. They won't sell alcohol, um, cigarettes, uh, oil, uh, fracking, anything that will hurt anything or anyone, they will not do it. There's a whole movement. There's a young man that that is actually created his own Wall Street. I can't remember right now. There was a big program in 60 Minutes that was talking about him. 
and they only want to do investments that do good. This is a whole new generation that it doesn't even make sense to them. Look, if there is any kind of evidence that this is going to hurt human beings or the environment, what would we want to do it? What is the, what, what, excuse me, can you explain that to me? It's very similar to what happened to me when I was young. It was like, why would we allow all these people to starve, mostly children? I don't understand. But it was like Mr. Fuller that then came and gave us answers. And some of those answers are very personal because it requires for people to think for themselves. So can I ask you uh, this? And I, I um, you know, if if we're if we live in a world where there is the the grounded, embodied recognition of abundance, and uh, and that wealth, in our personal definition, how you describe it, and so on, was readily available to us, we hit up against. And I and I'm asking a very I'm leading I'm asking a leading question, DC. <laughs> we hit up against this wall, which is. So uh, it's been demonstrated that if if everyone on the planet was brought to the standard of living of, of uh, the United States, that we'd need something like I don't know how many planets. I'm not sure how they work that number out. But anyway, um, the leading question is that I know that you're doing some work with a, a, a very uh, successful entrepreneur in China who's very invested in the in the future. So could you say a little bit more about that? Because I I don't think the two two components can live in the same conversation unless we address the larger systems and environmental issues of the planet? Well, basically, I mean, the environment is a very big piece for the survival of humanity, period. It's like um, this is where these young people are now coming in because they really have an understanding of a thing called what Buckminster Fuller calls spaceship Earth. So if you're going to hurt one part of the world, you're hitting the another. You, if you break a finger, it's going to hurt the whole body. It's not just going to hurt a, a finger. So we have one whole system. And uh, so, for instance, uh, Buckminster Fuller, uh, you know, he taught us about many different things. But one of the things that I never forgot was about teaching us about the usage of renewable energy. He was one of the first ones that began to talk about it, solar energy, about all these different aspects of how to have the world survive by taking care of the environment. So about eight years ago, I met one of the world's leading uh, renewable energy entrepreneur in in China who has a thing called the Solar Valley. And uh, I will give you the link. Uh, it's accelerated.com forward slash Wang Ming, but I'll give you that link for people to go to that you can list. And one of the things that I, we, have a, we have a description there of him. And what is so interesting is that this man created a very – successful business. He is a billionaire with heart. His company has traded something like over 50 billion yuan. And, um, and he is very interesting because his whole commitment is to the greening of China. He won what is considered a Nobel Prize in thermal energy by introducing the first green law in China being that he was Chinese, being that he was an engineer in the oil business and had an epiphany and realized that his daughter, when he held his baby for the first time, she's almost 30 years now, he realized when he looked in her eyes that she was not going to have a future 
if they continue just with oil, not at the growth that China was growing, not at the how, you know, the scarcity of oil and supposedly the scarcity of oil and all these things. So he went and did all this research and found all these things out about renewable energy, literally got down to his last 2,000 yuans. And, um, and it, for all intents and purposes, it could have been the last 2,000 U.S. dollars, Australian dollars, or whatever, Euro dollars, whatever you want to call it. It was the last of his money. And literally almost a miracle occurred where somebody, the right person, paid attention, took it to the right government officials, took it to the right processes, and became acceptable an acceptable business, and to make a long story short, he's now is one of the top leading renewable energy uh, entrepreneurs on the planet that can that has actually become a billionaire from renewable energy, which there aren't that many on the planet. So what he did is he found something that was really wanted and needed, had to educate people, and now I'm supporting him in opening up the North American version of that business is going to be an American business because, believe it or not, the United States only uses 15% of all of our energy uses is, is uh, solar, renewable energy. And, of course, that industry has been around for 40 years, but it has been a failure because it has gone through government subsidies. Long story. We're go- we, what we want to do is we want to create this business in being driven through profits by entrepreneurs that understand that in order for a business to succeed, we must take into consideration profits, money, people being paid well, people getting wealthier and doing what they need to do and do good. These are new paradigms that for certain people are old paradigms, but even the people like Warren Buffett, who is in an old paradigm, the way that he does business, but he gave half his fortune in order to uplift humanity's consciousness because him and Bill Gates and a bunch of other boys and girls, mega billionaires here in America, discovered that it didn't do them that good to be so rich if they couldn't help people. I mean, there are homeless people that they're stepping over in order to go into their fancy restaurants You know, there was something they had to do, and they found out that education was key. So I remember when somebody called me up and said, D.C., guess who has adopted your mission? And I couldn't even imagine. They go, Bill Gates. I go, Bill Gates, how did that happen? Well, he did a bunch of research and found out that in order to eradicate poverty and hunger on the planet, you had to transform education. He uses different words, but it's basically the same thing. So... Here you have new, nouveau riche, you could call it, mega rich people that are really finding ways how to create wealth from things that are really wanted and needed, and then old rich that have found out that they really need to contribute by becoming humanitarians. These guys were not always humanitarians, not always. So we love, I mean, this is all good news. This is all good news. I bring good news because we have a whole new paradigm that is happening from people that have had an awakening that 
wow, I could be a lot happier if I'm not the only rich one and if I support everyone having enough and having sufficiency on the planet, which bugged Mr. Fuller. Being a light, wherever he may be, I know that he's a light, he is absolutely reveling, just relishing the energy that has come on planet Earth in the year 2014. So, uh, I had a question just a second. Let me gather the question. I'm sorry. I I know that I take you to very interesting places, but we're talking about my love here. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. So here's the here's the question, because I know your work now is with social entrepreneurship, and so um, and there are again like anything there is a whole bunch of definitions around what that is and et cetera et cetera. Can you say can you say more about that? Oh, it's very simple. A social entrepreneur is a person that's very much interested not only in ha- making profits, but they also either their product or service will add tremendous value to humanity, to a group of people, or they can have a very traditional business that doesn't look like they do much, except, you know, they could be selling just tables. But what they do with their extra profits or in their spare time or in in the work that they do, they may be supporting a major cause. They may they may raise money on the weekends. They may take 10, 20, 30 percent of their profits and contribute it to others. That is a social entrepreneur. Anyone that puts money down and puts time and energy on doing something that will uplift humanity's consciousness in regards to their well-being, to the conditions of humanity, is considered a social entrepreneur. And I know that you've done a lot of work uh, for the last um, couple of decades, perhaps, in 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 China and Asia. And so, could you, for the audience uh, um, at the moment, is predominantly from the West. Can you speak a little bit about what your experience of experience is of the emergence of of entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship in those countries? And, and perhaps why, you know, what's sort of stimulating that? Where, where is it? Where is that coming from within the ecosystem of those those countries? Well, I mean, it, 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 there's definitely the times. I mean, you know, people get tired of seeing homeless people, of seeing, you know, like Indonesia, people destroying the environment. That no matter how rich Singapore is, they're going to be hit by the fires. I was there. I lived in Singapore for four years, and I cured myself of asthma, but I got asthma. I contracted asthma from all those fires. So it doesn't matter how rich you are if you have this tremendous pollution that hits you, you know, every September and October uh, because you're not helping your neighbor. That is it's called pain. <laughs> it's called pain. The other one, of course, China is the most interesting country because we have similar purposes, and they are about eradicating poverty and hunger. So they are the only country on the planet that since 1992 has brought at least 700 million people out of poverty. And the, and the way that they do it is that they're so interesting because it is a communist country, but they encourage business people to become wealthier and wealthier. But in China, you can't just get rich by yourself the way you do it in, in a country like the United States or, or in Australia. You have to 
do something for your environment. When you get to a certain point, you have to either build roads, hospitals, uh, schools, parks, or something. Immediately around you, you have got to uplift that whole area. You don't get to just have the big house on top of the hill and people are starving down the street. Uh Uh-uh. You don't get to do that in China. That's how the government has encouraged and has managed to take so many people out of poverty. By the way, they also have been doing solar and uh, renewable energy endeavors for the last 30 years. They haven't used plastic bags in about seven years. It's a very interesting country in that manner. Of course, you don't hear all these things because people love to do China bashing, which is very interesting to watch. And one of the things that that you also have in this – I'm not going to take a lot of credit for this because it would not be fair, but let me just say that my partners have had a little bit to do with it because we've been there for nearly 15 years, and quite a few of our graduates of Money and You and the Business School have become social entrepreneurs, and they have encouraged many others, many wealthy, to also not only do good the way that the government encourages them, but also for themselves to work with many other people to do win-win situations and to use the business success model, which, by the way, I want to make sure that you also will put a link for them to, to, to it's called um, um, free gift, you know, just a free gift moneyandyou.com forward slash free gift. They can download the business success model, and they will see that there is a business model that can take people through a process of how do you get your wealth to work for you and how do you build a business that will create wealth for you. So these are things that in the last – and, you know, Australians – and, you know, we have 14,000 graduates in Australia that did Money and You between the year 1985 and 1994. And many of the programs that you see in, in, uh, in Australia and New Zealand have either been started by Money and You graduates or by people that they have trained. We, we really had a tremendous influence. Australia and New Zealand are two of the countries that were very excited that we had an impact on also in Singapore. In Singapore, we have nearly 40,000 money and new graduates. Quite a few of those are also business school graduates. And, of course, Malaysia, and then we have Hong Kong, Taiwan, China. And then from there, you have then we have people in Brunei, and now we also have people in China and the other countries, the emerging nations. So when you get a whole movement of people that are now teaching all kinds of different ways of teaching business, but that also are encouraging others to add value to others, the ripple effects are so extensive, so extensive, that now, you know, 28 years later, you can actually see. So this is why it's so important for you as a person listening to this, that you individually can change the world then you connect up with other people that are changing the world, and then you find ways to, to become successful together and use the mechanisms in place of entrepreneurship and then uplift all of humanity. Lovely. So I just want, just before we sort of um, wrap this up, I just want to get a distinction that I think is really important, and, I, and it, it, it's, 
it's in the subtext of what you're speaking about, but I, I'd like to bring it from the subtext to um, to you know, on the table. I'm hearing that because there is a in the world of business and so on, there is a, an operating system that is quite predatory. In other words, uh, um, there's a lot of seduction and manipulation, and this could be applied in sales and marketing, but it's also in part of it's in our education systems. It's uh, it's so that there's all of that. I'm hearing that behind the work that you're doing, there is there is a clear distinction between smart business to create wealth in the whole sense of wealth and uh, and moving to a model of abundance versus scarcity that is more invitational and uh, because it, it 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 comes from a place of this social responsibility, social entrepreneurship, serving humanity in distinction from I want mine and I'm going to get it no matter what. Am I making sense, Cece? Yes, you are making sense. And that is correct. There is a whole series of circumstances that are happening. Not only is not popular anymore. Yes, there are certain environments where people are still predatory. They're still competing to no end. There's no question about it. That in many circles, in many countries, that has not changed, especially on certain up-and-coming countries that haven't yet learned the distinctions. But then there's also a whole other movement that is coming out of a transformation that has occurred in the world for many different reasons. And one of the reasons is that people have seen that people that are completely committed just to money alone are not happier, are not happier. You need to understand that 35 years ago, 40 years ago, we didn't have the tools for people to go out and get rich and get wealthy the way that we do now. We didn't. We didn't. We had certain books. We had Think and Grow Rich. We had these different metaphysicians. We had the dynamic laws of prosperity. We had, you know, certain books and things. But there has been a metamorphosis that has occurred that's kind of in alignment with when this transformational program started 40 years ago that people who are studying social conditions cannot ignore anymore. The consciousness movement, the transformational experiential trainings did have an effect on the planet. And so 40 years later, because I'm a student, I'm a student of people that started this in the 60s. I didn't do my first program until 1976. And so what has happened is that there there is this other emergence that is happening, but also the awareness and the Internet and the web and the communication and these young people that are coming in already born being social entrepreneurs are pointing out and saying, this is not okay to do anymore. And this is what Buckminster Fuller used to teach us. He used to say that technology was going to be one of the greatest solutions to the world's problems because technology was going to bring about the solutions to the problems. And you no longer, there's no government now on the planet that can really suppress its people for long. There is, you see it everywhere. I mean, black kids have been killed and beat up by cops. I used to be in the criminal court system in the 70s. You saw that day in and day out. 
all the time, all the time. Please forgive me for saying this, but they did. They, they used to do it in Australia. I'm very familiar with what happened in Australia. I'm very familiar with what used to happen in Melbourne, Australia, with cops and the, the kids in the flats. That, that, that has been happening forever, but now there's videos. Now there's Twitter. And something like that happens. There's videos everywhere, and no longer social injustice is not being allowed anymore. And that is all happening because of technology. So now people, you know, they begin to really relate to, like, wait a minute, why are we letting that baby die when of starvation? Uh, let me let me get this straight. Why is it? What's happening? And it's like all of a sudden they are asking that question, whereas only 35 years ago it happened so much, three or four more times than it happened that is happening now. So it is a good time on the planet. Believe it or not, it is a good time in the world. There is an emergence. And there is an awakening. The whole planet is going into two, two, three. They're going, <laughs> let me wake up. Oh, what is happening now? People that never had the consciousness to do it, they're beginning to wake up. It is such a beautiful thing to see because I started very young on this. When, when I used to talk the same way I talk today and people thought, you know, people used to be called hippies that talk like that. They used to be called stupid, naive, and and they didn't realize how many rich hippies there were. But now you have a bunch of hippies like Steven Spielberg, Jim Cameron, and all these guys that are now creating these amazing movies and these amazing showing the world solutions to the problems. There are some movies coming up that I can't really talk about right now, but by Christmas time, there's going to be a movie around Hawaii that's going to blow your mind with one of the world's most leading directors. They're waking up, and they're showing up, and this is a good thing for the world. Well, on that note, I think uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll end this uh, interview. Um, I want to thank you from my heart, a, a really deep bow of thanks. Uh, you, you uh, this is a testament of the influence that you have had because the seeds were sown. I think it was back in about 1986 in Sydney. The seeds were sown back there uh, when I attended my first Money New program, and. Uh, Bucky Fuller, though I never had the privilege of meeting him, um, has been a constant companion in the journey of my life. He continues to inspire me, and sometimes he annoys the crap out of me because he's <laughs> he <has laughs> a type of commitment that is very big. Uh, but I, you know, DC, you and and the constancy of your work and the constancy of the gift that you give in uh, in. Uh, bringing social entrepreneurship and changing how, um, you know, working with education and so on, is really, you know, this is a testament because right here where somehow many years later we're in this conversation and uh, and so that's, uh, there is certainly a significant piece that is thanks to you. Thank you, thank you. And you know what, and we can have a lot of fun. This is the yeah. thing for your audience to know. <laughs> You don't have to give up uh, what I call the, your Miss Piggy ways, you know, the spa, <laughs> the nice clothes. That's what we're back to talking about cash. Right, you, can be, <laughs> you can be as rich as you want to be and contribute, contribute, contribute to others. You, you don't have to have the most 
socially responsible product or service. You really don't. You can continue with whatever business you're in as long as you're not hurting anyone, anything, or the environment. If you are involved in that, stop. Don't. Don't anymore. Don't rationalize in your head. Don't. Don't do it. This is, this is what a lot of the money in your graduates go through. They do. They, they, they take a look at their lives for the first time without judgment. It's just like, nope, that never has felt right for me to do. I think I'm going to go do something else that, that can do a little bit better for the world. And then when you find yourself, what's so interesting is that then you will have all the money you ever wanted, but it won't make that much of a difference because you will be so happy within yourself. Yes. You will have peace. You will have joy. You will have contentment. You will have things that money can't buy, and yet you will have a lot of money that you can buy a whole bunch of toys, and you can, you can shower your beloveds and your godchildren, whatever, your grandchildren with cash if you like. But that's what we mean by I love cash, but I love contribution more. And if you, can, if you find a way to combine the two, groovy, as we used to say back in the 70s. <laughs> That's a beautiful message. Thank you so much, DC. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. We'll make sure all of the, the uh, links are in the show notes for people who are interested in following up and learning more about DC and Money and You and all of her work. Uh, we'll include all of that in the show notes. Thank you again. Aloha, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you want more of 2.23 a.m., then you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the blog of 2.23am.com. That's blog.223am.com, where you'll find articles and interviews featuring stellar guests from around the world, plus tools and resources and much, much more. Follow 2.23am on Twitter at twitter.com slash 2 underscore 23am. That's 2 underscore 23am. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash 0223am. Till next time, thank you for listening.